0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of February 18, 2024. The podcast that invented teeth darkeners. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's pectize the news of the bogus. And the big news this week is the oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson, the Supreme Court hearing about the disqualification of Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot for being a treasonifical insurrectionologist. One bit of news is exactly how dumb Justice Sotomayor is. Check my YouTube channel for that. But Jonathan Turley posted an interesting article being someone who covered Bush v. Gore back in the day. Although no one really questioned it before now, all of a sudden, these so-called experts came out of the woodwork and said that states could just DECLARE someone to have engaged in insurrection and keep them off the ballot, absent any impeachment conviction or conviction in a court of law. As Turley relates, quote, "...the Trump case exposed the erosion of legal coverage in the media for millions of Americans." The cold reception of all of the justices to the novel theory under the 14th Amendment came as a surprise. Networks and newspapers have been featuring experts who assured the public that this theory was well-based and disqualification well-established. The only barrier, they insisted, was the blind partisanship of the six conservative justices on the court. That's already a misconception, as I've pointed out before. There are only three conservative justices: Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. Roberts, Barrett, and Kavanaugh are institutionalists, not conservatives. They're federalist society, and if you don't understand that, your predictions on their positions will be far afoul of what ends up happening. But as Turley points out, the problems are hardly limited to that. Quote, this is not a case of the court changing. We have changed as legal analysts. The court itself is deeply divided on some issues. However, the justices gave a fair hearing to both sides. That is not the case with the coverage. Looking back at the coverage, most legacy media called upon the same legal experts who have previously endorsed virtually every claim made against Trump. They predictably declared Trump as clearly disqualified despite the fact that this theory has never been embraced by the federal courts. They even relied on Lawrence tribe, despite having a long record of constitutional claims being rejected by SCOTUS, some of them unanimously. And he makes this claim with all of the confidence that he made with those failing arguments, including the same assurance that there is absolutely no room for any doubt. And yet... According to the media, the only thing standing in the way is the bias of conservative justices. As Congress thing Jamie Raskin said, quote, "...this is a chance for these justices to show that they really mean it when they talk about textualism, when they talk about originalism. The plain text of the Constitution could not be any clearer." Right, Raskin, it is clear, but clear that you're WRONG! One problem with the idea that it's these horrible conservatives is that Kagan and Jackson also expressed deep and profound objections to the disqualification. Although we'll have to wait for SCOTUS to deliver their opinion, and they have given no indication that they'll do so before the normal release of opinions at the end of the term in June, it looks like the ruling might not be 6 to 3, but 8 to 1, or even 9 to 0. What will the press do then? As Turley writes, The question is whether such a result will change how media outlets frame these disputes in the future. After weeks of portraying the opposition as only resting with the right of the court, the coverage had a weird disjointed feel, as some of the same commentators reported that the justices appeared uniformly unconvinced by this unassailable theory. And that's going to be the case with a lot of other Trump-related cases including one where Jack Smith goes against the long-standing and well-respected Marbury v. Madison, the seminal case that solidified constitutional separation of powers. Personally, I'm predicting more than one smackdown, and it'll be interesting to see how, or even if, the press changes how it functions after all that embarrassment. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. We've covered problems of bail before, mostly the practice of setting bail pretty much by default when most defendants can be released on their own recognizance, and setting bails higher than needed to ensure attendance at trial, often set so high that the defendant can't even afford it. And although there have been some reforms, such as a federal court declaring that judges cannot receive financial incentives to set high bail and secure convictions, in Louisiana at least, that's been happening. And they've been making out like bandits. One was able to lease a BMW. One booked a week's stay in a five-person beachfront condo. Another bought an iPhone 12. And so on. All paid for by defendants in their courtrooms. All perfectly legal under Louisiana state law. Most other places, bail fines and fees aren't allocated in ways that benefit judges. But in Louisiana, thanks to a system left over from Jim Crow, they go into a fund that judges have control of and wide discretion over. They use them for staff salaries, law library subscriptions, luxury cars, and high priced hotels like the Ritz-Carlton. In 2019, a federal court ruled this system was unconstitutional in not one but two rulings, Kane v. New Orleans and Callis v. Cantrell. But the decisions, even though they were based on the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, only affected New Orleans, the rest of Louisiana continues the practice. On top of that, a report that represents years of preparation by a legislative commission for the Louisiana State Legislature Determined the practice was unconstitutional. And although it wasn't a precedential decision, Louisiana Supreme Court officials said in a workshop that judges were, quote, directed to completely forego the assessment of any fees that are to be explicitly paid to the JEF. Years later, the law remains unchanged and the practice continues. Judges continue to do nothing about it as they reap the benefits monetarily. In fact, Fines and fees charged to defendants were the primary revenue source for a quarter of the state's judicial expense funds in 2021 and 2022. In some cases, it represents over 90% of their expense fund revenue. Bail is often set so high the defendants can't afford it, and so they're left paying a fee to private bail bonds agents, and almost all judicial expense funds in Louisiana get a cut. And since that's money paid to a bonds company, even if they show up for trial, even if the charges are dropped, they never get that money back. Which means a lot of them can't afford it at all. So they sit in jail, pre-trial detention, having not yet been convicted of anything. Little wonder Louisiana has the nation's highest pre-trial incarceration rate. And it's not just bail. Judges get a cut of fines and fees, so when a defendant pleads guilty or is convicted, and a fine is part of the sentence, they have every incentive to make the fine as steep as possible. Back in 2018, former Louisiana Supreme Court Chief Justice Burnett Joshua Johnson told the state legislature, quote, "...innocence, though presumed by our system, is currently bad for our bottom line." Would you have faith in the system if you knew that every single actor in the criminal justice system, including the judge and your court-appointed lawyer, relied upon a steady stream of guilty pleas and verdicts to fund their offices? Would you doubt your ability to get justice? This is basically the judge version of civil asset forfeiture. They can just take the money, and according to state law, use it basically however they want. And, of course, they're actively opposing any reform. Here's hoping a higher court puts a stop to it all. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? Going across the pond, the United Nations is continuing negotiations on the Countering the Use of Information and Communications Technologies for Criminal Purposes Treaty, also known as the UN Cybercrime Treaty. It's designed to counter the increasing threat of cybercrime from small-time criminals to major hacking organizations to nation-states. The problem is... According to the expert at Google's Privacy, Safety, and Security Engineering, it could actually make web security worse. Why? Why do you think? Because it's an agreement to basically ban encryption and allow governments to spy on the digital lives of their citizens as well as deny due process rights and break current security. A few weeks ago, the EFF published a major criticism of the treaty, pointing out how it would, quote, violate international human rights standards, states where it's a crime to criticize political leaders, Thailand, upload videos of yourself dancing, Iran, or wave a rainbow flag in support of LGBTQ plus rights, Egypt, can, under this UN-sanctioned treaty, require one country to conduct surveillance to aid another in accordance with the data disclosure standards of the requesting country. This includes surveilling individuals under investigation for these offenses, with the expectation that technology companies will assist. Such assistance involves turning over personal information, location data, and private communications secretly, without any guardrails, in jurisdictions lacking robust legal protections. So, basically, it's like the Five Eyes, except it would be expanded to the 500 Eyes, or however many countries sign on. The EFF called for the scope of the law to be severely narrowed to specific cybercrimes and include provisions that protect security researchers, whistleblowers, journalists, and human rights defenders. Now the experts at Google have spoken out as well, saying, quote, "...such safeguards aren't just important to ensuring free expression and human rights. They are also critical to protecting web security." Too often, as we know well from helping stand up the Security Researcher Legal Defense Fund, individuals working to advance cybersecurity for the public good end up facing criminal charges. The Cybercrime Treaty should not criminalize the work of legitimate cybersecurity researchers and penetration testers, which is designed to protect individual systems and the web as a whole. Member states should avoid attempts to criminalize activities that raise significant freedom of expression issues, or that actually undercut the treaty's goal of reducing cybercrime, that will require strengthening critical guardrails and protections. You know, it almost seems like that's the real goal, to be able to oppress citizens in the name of fighting cybercrime. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling? or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free-market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I, Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 apiece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash tuttletwins. And now it's time to fanaticize this week's Biggest Bell Mitter. And this week it goes to the Wall Street Journal, because we said we'd look at other cases where the government or the news media went after an Elon Musk venture, in this case, Tesla again. It may become like cops behaving badly stories. They happen so often we don't cover them unless it's an extreme example. These anti-Tesla stories may well be becoming that common. And that's just what we were looking out for. In this case, the fear-mongering is... Tesla worker killed in Fiery Crash may be first full self-driving fatality." It is ABSOLUTELY DISGUSTING when they use a tragedy to push an agenda, and they're doing that here. Hans von O'Hain had Eric Rossiter and his Tesla on their way to play golf. Now, remember all the times we discussed the news media using things like passive voice or an inanimate object as the subject of the sentence? The journal wrote that the accident happened, quote, "...when Von O'Hane's Tesla suddenly swerved off Upper Bear Creek Road." In this case, they mean it quite literally, quote, "...the car's driver assistance software, full self-driving, was struggling to navigate the mountain curves, forcing Von O'Hain repeatedly to yank it back on course." According to the story, quote, "...the Tesla Model 3 barreled into a tree, and EXPLODED in flames. Which is weird, because they don't have any gasoline. And even gasoline cars don't explode. We've certainly seen far worse Tesla crashes with no flames whatsoever. In fact, when you actually look at the police report, it was actually the lithium battery cells that caught fire. They CANNOT explode, and they don't make any bigger fire than ice cars, if that. Just ask any firefighter how insane vehicle fires can get. The aftermath can look worse, as it does in the photo accompanying this story, if firefighters don't respond early, because the batteries can burn for a longer period of time. But smoke inhalation can kill you in minutes, if not seconds, so in this context, it really doesn't matter. Ohain was killed, and according to the journal, quote, In a recent interview, Rossiter said he believes that Von Ohain was using full self-driving, which if true, would make his death the first known fatality involving Tesla's most advanced driver assistance technology. First red flag. Scroll way down into the story and you read, quote, Von O'Hain and Rossiter had been drinking, and an autopsy found that Von O'Hain died with a blood alcohol level of 0.26, more than three times the legal limit. A level of intoxication that would have hampered his ability to maintain control of the car, experts said. Uh Uh-huh. And it just might have also affected Rossiter's perception of the situation, right? But right after that, they say, quote, automakers race toward the promise of a driverless future. For private vehicles, that day is far from here. But critics say features like full self-driving already are giving drivers a false sense of confidence about taking their eyes off the road or getting behind the wheel after drinking, evincing the dangers of letting consumers test an evolving experimental technology on the open road. Remember that, to them, you are stupid, useless, dangerous, and can't be trusted. Sums up the news media's attitude towards us perfectly you have to scroll down even further to read that Tesla has multiple warnings, including on installation and when it's activated, that FSD is not intended for full self-driving autonomy, and the driver still has to maintain control of the vehicle and stop it from causing accidents or violating traffic laws. Before they got to that part, they just had to exploit O'Hane's widow, Nora Bass, who said, quote, Regardless of how drunk Hans was, Musk has claimed that this car can drive itself and is essentially better than a human. We were sold a false sense of security. It takes even further to get to the details showing no brakes were applied, and rolling tire marks to show the wheels were being powered. They quoted an idiot patrol sergeant saying that was consistent with FSD, but no, it isn't! NOT AT ALL! IT'S CONSISTENT WITH THIS FOOL HAVING HIS FOOT TO THE FLOOR! The rest of the article is peppered with other fear-mongering and restating the false hysteria over the so-called recalls we've covered. Now, you may be saying, Shane, that's all well and good, but isn't it good to be critical of FSD when it fails this way? There's just one teensy tiny little problem with that. The car didn't have full self-driving. Elon Musk tweeted, He was not on FSD. The software had unfortunately never been downloaded. I say unfortunately because the accident probably would not have happened if FSD had been engaged. Tesla's policy chief Rohan Patel backed him up, quote, A tragic loss of one of our team members and inaccurate reporting on it years later. Apart from FSD beta software not being downloaded on the car, data from the incident was not retrievable. Notwithstanding the lack of information, as per NHTSA SGO requirements, Tesla reported the incident on the basis of unverified allegations that were made in a vehicle owner questionnaire submitted to the agency. While we disagree with the SGO rules and the confusion they cause as evidenced in this case and others, we follow these reporting rules regardless. Oh, yeah, this accident happened two years ago. The journal didn't mention that part. Again, this sort of fear-mongering is incredibly harmful. By every piece of reliable data available, you're safer using FSD than driving yourself. And even just according to logic, you're just as much in control of your Tesla when FSD is on than when it's off. You can overwrite anything it does at any time, so at worst, It'll drive as badly as you do. At best, it'll react before you have a chance to, and stop an accident you might not be able to avoid. As I said last time, this just opens the door for people to drive as horribly as they want, and just blame the car for the problems they cause. Remember, his blood alcohol level was .26, just .15 is associated with major loss of motor control Poor or no balance, severe attention and reaction deficits, and inability to process sounds or visuals, and nausea or vomiting. It's also associated with dangerously impaired judgment and decision making, especially regarding driving skills. And apparently, it's only about 4% away from severe alcohol poisoning and loss of consciousness. Too bad we don't know Rossiter's blood alcohol level, but I suspect Given that the two were drinking together, it would be similar. Which seriously calls into question his memory and perception of events. What's more believable? Ohane was commode hanging drunk. He had FSD on and FSD for some reason hit the pedal to the floor and steered him into a tree. When tons of people have posted videos of Tesla using FSD and it never behaves anything like that. Or, Ohane was commode-hanging drunk and had his foot to the floor, overriding FSD even if it were on and activated. In a car that sounds an alarm if you even begin to drift out of your lane. A drunk guy crashed and died. That's all there is to this story. But since it happened in a Tesla, the news media takes it as an opportunity to go on the attack. Whereas full self-driving and other forms of autonomous driving is the best way to prevent this kind of tragedy from happening in the future. So all of that makes the Wall Street Journal this week's biggest bogon emitter. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's translocate this week's... Idiot, Idiot Extraordinary! Idiot. And this week, it's Virginia State Senator Craig Deeds who just beat out Joe Biden for DUMBEST GUN STATEMENT EVER. Remember when Biden said you don't need an AR-15, just use a 12-gauge shotgun? And when he even advised shooting it through a closed door to a target you can't see, violating one of the big four gun safety rules? Two weeks later, he made it worse by saying to walk outside and fire two blasts if there's a problem and also said that MSRs, like the AR-15, are more difficult to aim and use. Believe it or not, Craig Deeds outdid him. He and his fellow Democrats in the state, House, and Senate passed an assault weapons ban to send to the governor, because it's yet another state blatantly ignoring the Constitution and the Supreme Court. So Deeds said, quote, "...a shotgun is liable to cause more noise and do more damage and is easier to control than an assault-style weapon that you lose control of once you pull the trigger. Who knows what you shoot up? Who knows how many of your own family members you hurt? I think there are other ways to protect one's property other than with an assault weapon. Like Biden, it's apparent that Deeds hasn't even HELD an MSR, let alone fired one. One of the features of AR-15s and other MSRs is the low recoil from the smaller, low-powered .223 Remington they fire and that makes it easier to make a second shot on the target if needed. Also, how would you lose control of it given that each trigger function only fires one round? And how about the fact that, generally, shotguns shoot pellets that spread, and so you have less control of how much of an area gets damaged than with the two-two-three. It's unclear as of yet if Governor Glenn Youngkin will veto the bill. If he does, at least Virginians will be spared this idiotic bill. Unfortunately, they'll have to deal with Deeds at least until 2028. So all of that makes Craig Deeds this week's... Idiot, Idiot Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Well, that wraps up this... My theories appall you, my heresies outrage you, I never answer letters, and you don't like my tie edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support, and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Edward Abbey. Let us hope our weapons are never needed, but do not forget what the common people of this nation knew when they demanded the Bill of Rights. An armed citizenry is the first defense, the best defense, and the final defense against tyranny. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.